Warning, some of the following stories are quite graphic. There's a nurse charged after removing a patient's foot without his consent. A Pierce County nurse is facing multiple charges after investigators say she amputated a patient's foot without permission. According to the criminal complaint, the investigation began after the patient died at the Spring Valley Health and Rehab Center. A medical examiner doing the autopsy called law enforcement officers because the 62-year-old man's foot was not attached to his body. The complaint says the man was brought to the center in March after he fell and had severe frostbite on his feet. Mary Brown, who was a nurse at the center, is charged with elder abuse. She told investigators she cut off his right foot to help alleviate his pain. She admitted she didn't have a doctor's permission to remove the foot. The Spring Valley Center says it's cooperating with the investigation and says Brown is no longer an employee. I have a lot more about this. We're about to get into the graphic parts. 62. He was 62 years old. Authorities have accused her, and she is from Wisconsin, of intentionally cutting off a dying patient's foot with hopes of displaying it in her family's taxidermy shop. Mary Kay Brown, 38, she told co-workers she planned to display the severed foot alongside a sign that read, Wear your boots, kids. Court records indicate Brown has been charged with physical abuse of an elder person and mayhem. According to the arrest affidavit, he was a 62-year-old unidentified patient. The victim was admitted into the facility in March due to a fall at a home, and he was severely frostbitten on his feet. Workers at the nursing home reportedly described the patient's feet as black like a mummy. The victim's health continued to deteriorate with the time from the time he was admitted, and he suffered another fall out of bed, further damaging his right foot. Brown had no doctor's order to conduct the amputation. She stated that she did not have any authorization to remove his foot. She's a doc she's a nurse, not a doctor. This is against the scope of her ability to practice. A doctor's order would have been necessary. And usually they'd have a doctor on standby. Still, Brown allegedly forged ahead with her plan to amputate the foot using gauze and scissors. There were two other nurses that witnessed the incident. The man, she said, the man did not appear to be in pain during the procedure and suffered minimal blood loss, but also noted it was not a very good amputation, cited a witnessing nurse. However, it's reported that another nurse told investigators the patient claimed he had felt everything and it hurt very bad. Following the procedure, Brown allegedly put the foot in a red biohazard bag and placed it in the freezer, only to tell another nurse to retrieve it so she could take it home to preserve it. The nurse did not comply, and days later the victim died. The medical examiner reportedly alerted authorities to the man's death after discovering his foot was not attached to his corpse. According to the affidavit, WEAU reports, co-workers defended Brown's decision to amputate, stating that she did not do so out of malice, but rather to provide a patient with dignity and comfort. 
You're listening to Midnight Radio. I'm your host, Jerry Adams. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to call and you have a comment or question about any of these stories that I'm covering tonight, the phone number is 325-261-0892. That is 325-261-0892. You can call that. Leave me up to a three-minute voicemail message. You can also email me. You can email me at midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. That is midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. We're available on all your favorite podcasting apps. And if you haven't yet, check our YouTube site. We have many interesting videos on there. Dog spotted carrying human arm in its mouth in Mississippi. More body parts found next day, but head is still missing. The dog was spotted around a Mississippi neighborhood with a severed human arm hanging from its mouth as authorities searched for the head of the headless corpse they discovered. The bizarre ordeal happened on Saturday when a resident driving along Middle Road in South Jackson saw a dog carrying something unusual in his mouth and then called the police. Can you imagine that? There's been video posted to social media showed what appeared to be a German shepherd carrying a charred human arm. The mystery in the rural Mississippi town deepened. On Sunday at Jackson, as Jackson investigators combed the woods near an abandoned house on Terry Road, they made the gruesome discovery of a headless body with one of its arms missing. The victim appeared to be a white male, according to the Hines County Coroner. And you know what? I just got an update that they've identified the body, but they're not releasing that yet. On Tuesday afternoon, Commander Abram Thompson said that they are still working on identifying the victim, although, like I said, they have it now. He said that he is not able to confirm if a German Shepherd was the dog that located the severed limb, but he did confirm it was a canine. Today marks the third straight day that someone found those human remains in what police are calling a murder investigation. Jackson police taping off the crime scene at an abandoned house on Terry Road after a gruesome discovery. Somebody found human remains in the backyard Monday morning. Investigators say it's the third straight day body parts have been discovered in this area. What do you make of hearing something like this? It's not a good feeling. I mean, not body parts. I mean, you know, it's just not a good feeling to me. It's spooky. It makes you be aware of your surroundings for sure. Authorities say the investigation started Saturday not far away when a man spotted his dog with human remains in its mouth on Middle Drive. On Sunday, officers found other body parts in a wooded area behind an abandoned house, but they say the victim's head had been dismembered. We're still um, investigating. We're still um, looking for remains. How bizarre and strange a case is this? Well... Um, I would say that an individual that's responsible for it, we most definitely want to find out where his or her head was. We want to know what they were thinking. And tonight, police believe the victim is a white male. They haven't been able to identify that person yet. Body has been transported to the state crime lab for an autopsy. Tonight, we're live at JPD headquarters. Ross Adams, 16 WAPT News. 
And we're live right now on MidnightRad.io. That's our website, Midnight Radio. That is MidnightRad.io. Man, can you imagine? So the owner of the dog is the one that found his dog running around with the with the arm in his mouth. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's bad enough you see your dog eating his own doo-doo or something. Imagine he's coming into your yard with a severed human arm. Oh, man. I got some more information for you about the Delphi murderous suspect, Richard Allen. Apparently, he penned a letter. More about it right now. Thanks for inviting us in. It's 6 o'clock, and we begin tonight with this new insight about the upcoming trial for the Delphi murder suspect. Richard Allen faces two murder charges in the 2017 deaths of Abby Williams and Libby German in Delphi. He was just arrested a couple of weeks ago. Our senior investigative reporter, Bob Siegel, joins us in studio. He's got the new details on Richard Allen's legal defense. Bob? Well, Scott and Ann, in a jailhouse letter to the Carroll County Circuit Court, Richard Allen is, in his words, begging for legal assistance. He's asked the court for a public defender. In the letter, Allen says he tried to get a lawyer but did not realize how expensive private counsel would be. He also mentioned he and his wife have lost their jobs, which has hurt their financial situation. Right now, Allen is being held by the Indiana Department of Corrections, and a special judge has been appointed to handle the case. According to both the U.S. and state constitution, a judge is required to appoint counsel if a defendant cannot afford their own. Now, Allen's trial is scheduled for March 20th. There's a reasonable chance that day will be postponed to give both sides more time to prepare for the trial. Right now, details about the evidence that led to Allen's murder arrest are still sealed at the request of the Carroll County prosecutor. In two weeks, 13 News will be attending a public hearing where a judge will decide if those records will remain sealed. We're going to keep you updated on this here on Midnight Radio. I do want to say this. All these people that are charged here, we're going over their stories. They're innocent until proven guilty as far as I'm concerned. Some more stories coming up about people that are accused and some that have finally been sentenced and that were deemed very guilty, and they get their punishment tonight on Midnight Radio. Delphi murders. I'm going to put the... Of course, there's links to all of the articles I'm going over on the show notes to this podcast. And if you want to catch us live for the broadcast, again, that's midnightrad.io. Now, let me say this. I am going to put that letter up on my YouTube page of the Delphi murder. But I have something to say about this. So they didn't go over everything the letter said. One of the things is that him and his wife are out of work now because he's arrested and she has to not go to work because of safety concerns, which I can see. Again, he's still innocent until proven guilty. We don't even have any idea what his involvement in there was. There was another man who they really are leaning towards was involved too. So we don't know what Richard's involvement was, if they were both involved or what. Maybe Richard knew. We don't know yet. We don't know anything because the records are sealed. Although we heard from the the police chief, and he's very confident they got the right man. So we're going to see. What was the name of the other man that was charged? He wasn't charged. They charged him at one time, but they had to let him go. Nevertheless, we don't know what all the charges are. But I do want to say this about the man and his wife. They He also said in that letter that he was losing his house. So typically, one of the things you would do to afford a lawyer is you would put your house up for sale. And apparently that's not happening. It seems to me like his wife is gone. His wife left. 
His wife is not standing behind her man. You know, I've seen this happen in other cases when a woman finds out that her husband is a molester or a child murderer and she stops and she doesn't fight and she says, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then she goes over all the inconsistencies of the things he said. She knows on that day that he called her. He had, he had the day off and she was at work. She knows that he called her just to make sure she was there. Maybe he talked to her that morning before he left and do some, Oh, I, I have to do this out in town or I have to do that out in town. It's probably what he said, making sure she wasn't going to come home or anywhere near where he was performing his dirty deeds. And then later there was a bar owner that said that the two of them, the wife and the husband, Richard Allen and his wife were talking about the murder in a bar because they were frequenters of the establishment. And uh, he probably talked to his wife about it the day after she didn't know and no charges are against her. So while he was out in town doing something away from him, away from her, and he made sure, and maybe something weird was happened like, oh, Richard Allen did an extra load of laundry that day, which he never does. He always let his wife do it. But she noticed and asked him about it. And he's like, oh, this and this, um, something like that. Well, it would make sense to her. She'd get the hell out of there. He wouldn't be able to do anything with the house, and he wouldn't be able to afford a lawyer because his wife probably left him. Just saying. This is a story we covered a couple days ago. I think it was yesterday. Maybe the day before. Taylor Parker sentenced to death do you remember taylor parker now before we're going to go over that story i got some court i got a story about court documents detailing the convicted killer taylor parker's behavior in jail now this is very telling so i'm going to play this one first and then i'm going to play about her sentencing and we're going to talk about it on the flip side Taylor Parker, who was convicted of killing a pregnant woman and her unborn child, will stand before a judge tomorrow to determine her sentence. But court records reveal Parker's time behind bars has not been pleasant for staff and inmates housed in the jail with her. KSLA News 12's Alexandra Savage reports. The sentencing trial of Taylor Parker is set to begin tomorrow in a Bowie County courtroom. You may recall Parker was found guilty of capital murder in the death of Reagan Hancock and removing Hancock's unborn child, who later died at a McCurtain County hospital. The jury will now decide whether to sentence Parker to life in prison without parole or death. Prosecutors are seeking the death sentence. Court documents filed by the Bowie County District Attorney's Office say since Parker's incarceration in October 2020, she has repeatedly and continuously engaged in criminal behavior, violation of jail policy, and has continued her fraudulent pattern of lying and misrepresenting most all aspects of her medical history and medical status. Documents read Parker had access to an email kiosk and the jail phone system where she discussed her schemes and scams. Court documents read Parker repeatedly rips up or modifies her jail clothing to be more revealing. Prosecutors say Parker has continued romantic relationships with other male and female inmates. Also, since being locked up, prosecutors say Parker included a fraudulent scheme directed at fabricating evidence tampering with witnesses and ultimately framing a mentally fragile inmate for the crime. The sentencing trial could last 
up to three weeks in the 202 Bowie County District Court. In Bowie County, Alexandria Savage, KSLA News 12. Taylor Parker. All right, we're about to get to the sentencing right now. Before that, I want to say this. What is the definition of a sociopath, ladies and gentlemen? Do you know? Let me look that up. Definition of sociopath. So, one of the, I don't know, definitions, maybe a psychopath. Here's a bit. The most common definition of sociopath is someone living with antisocial personality disorder, which, I mean, if they're going to give a complete definition, they should define that. But it's a condition which one ignores societal norms, possesses little to no conscience, lacks empathy for others, and is completely self-serving. That is what she is, a sociopath, exactly. There's no way she could be let out of jail because she would do it again. Even in jail, she's doing the same things that she got convicted of. And what is that? It wasn't the baby that she wanted, that she cut out of that woman's stomach. She didn't want the baby. She already had two children, and she had her tubes tied. She was in a relationship at the time with a man that wanted a baby, or she wanted to keep him, so she faked her pregnancy, and then she cut the baby out of another woman with no conscience, no caring for her, because she was just serving herself. Man, and she didn't do murder until she got to this point, but it wasn't any different than you and I going out and buying a package of M&Ms because it was serving herself. She's a complete sociopath, defined textbook sociopath. Whatever it is, no matter how drastic you and I, it would seem to you and I, the average person, it's like, wow. To them, it's just another rung in the ladder of the things they want. It didn't stop her before, and it wouldn't stop her now. Now we're going to go into her sentencing. What do you think she got sentenced with? This has been served. Those were the words from the family of Reagan Hancock after Hancock's killer was sentenced to the death penalty inside a Bowie County courtroom today. After a sentencing trial that lasted nearly a month itself, it only took jurors hours to make a decision. Alexandria Savage reports. Convicted killer Taylor Parker entered the courtroom today with her fate in the hands of a Bowie County jury. When court was over, Parker was sentenced to death row for the brutal deaths of Reagan Hancock and removing Hancock's unborn child, Braxlin. We're just so thankful that justice was served today for not only our family, our friends, the prosecution team, our community. Jessica Brooks is Reagan's mother and now wears a necklace in honor of her daughter and granddaughter. Jessica and other family members were in court when the death sentence was announced. During closing arguments, the prosecution asked the jury to remember Reagan as a woman who died fighting for her child. Prosecutors said this was the most heinous crime Bowie County has ever seen. For months, Taylor Parker claimed she was pregnant, but in October of 2020, police were called to Hancock's new Boston, Texas home and found Reagan inside dead and her unborn child removed. Later that day, Taylor Parker was arrested at McCurtain County Hospital when she showed up with a child she claimed was hers. The child was Braxlin, who later died. 
After two years, Reagan's sister Emily Simmons got a chance to address Taylor Parker. I'm just, I'm overwhelmed with happiness it's over because she has been such a burden in our life for so long now that I haven't been able to really think about my sister without thinking about her. Family members of Reagan Hancock said they hope the trial will be about their loved ones, not Taylor Parker. They, and we believe that justice has been served and now we move on and just keep our baby's memories alive. The last order given by Judge John Tidwell was take her to death row. Inmates on death row receive an automatic appeal. In Bowie County, Alexandria Savage, KSLA News 12. I don't see her winning her appeal, especially not with her continued behavior in prison, although I don't know that that would help her anyway in this case. Let me know what you think about these stories. I'm going to let you know that you can hit me up. On noagendasocial.com. If you go to noagendasocial.com, you can sign up for a free Mastodon account there. And that's where I hang out. Now, I'm under the name at Pops. So if you want to talk to me or if you want to follow me on No Agenda Social, which is a Mastodon service like Twitter, except there's no, there's no censorship. And believe me, with the stories I cover, I don't need censorship. Again, that's noagendasocial.com. At Pops, there's still room on the Mastodon server. You're uh, free and welcome to join it. Remember there, my name is at Pops. Next story. I'm covering this because of the picture of the mugshot of this gentleman. And the title of it is KFC employee accused of threatening customer with, with firearm at Texas drive through Now you all realize, and I'm sure you've heard many stories about violence and fighting between customers and and drive through attendants at, at these restaurants. KFC had something uh, approximately eight months ago, I believe, where there was a worker that threw scalding water on a couple of patrons, teenage patrons that were, you know, being unruly. But then they threw hot scalding water on them and caused massive damage to them. And there's, there's other cases too. But in this case, Nicholas Friesen, 21, he's been charged with deadly conduct and unlawful carrying of a weapon. According to an affidavit on November 3rd, officers with the Odessa Police Department, a lot of these are from Texas, aren't they? They responded to the KFC location, 1730 North, County Road West to investigate after someone called 911 and reported that a man in the restaurant had a gun. At the scene, officers met with a man who said an employee identified as Ferrison had displayed a firearm at his waist by lifting his shirt during a verbal confrontation at the window. Ferrison allegedly told the customer, I'll pop you while displaying the firearm. Investigators said Friesen told them that he displayed the firearm because he felt threatened. Friesen was arrested and taken to the county law enforcement center where he was later released on a $1,500 bond. And man, I want you to see this mugshot. He almost looks like a emaciated, long-haired Macaulay Culkin that's on some kind of drugs. And you know, I'm not saying this man has a criminal record at all, but I do know most fast food places, believe it or not, don't mind if you have some kind of criminal record there matter of fact a lot of 
child molesters can get jobs. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, this is true. It's, it's not against the hiring policy to hire people that have a history of sexual offenses. I'm not saying this man is, but I'm saying this is a story that was bad, but you see his, you see his booking photo in, it gets a little darker. But not as dark and not as disheartening as this next story. In August, ambulances rushed 11-year-old Arabella McCormick to the hospital. Sadly, doctors couldn't save her. Now, three months later, deputies just announced three family members facing charges for her murder and torture. Uh, when kids are involved, and to the extent of, of, of the details in this case, um, I think no matter how long you've been on or how, how soon, you can somehow relate and it impacts you in some way, whether you have kids or not. Um, it's, it's horrifying. In August, around 2 in the morning, deputies say they got a call about a child in distress. That child, 11-year-old Arabella, died hours later at the hospital. There was a lot of what appeared to be malnourishment um, and bruising. The same day Arabella died, investigators say her adoptive father, a Border Patrol agent named Brian McCormick, took his own life in front of deputies. Now, McCormick's widow, Leticia McCormick, faces a murder charge, three counts of torture and three counts of willful child cruelty. Her father, Stanley Tom, faces the same charges. Her mother, Adela Tom, faces torture and willful child cruelty charges, but is not charged with murder. We've been working with the DA very closely on this case, um, and everyone was on board when we had these warrants uh, put out for uh, Leticia, um, Adela, and Stanley. Arabella's biological parents tell us Arabella and her two younger sisters moved in with the McCormicks around 2017, and their adoptions were finalized a couple years later. Leticia McCormick has been an important figure in the Rock Church, serving as the Ministry Leadership Program Coordinator and was an ordained elder. Tuesday, the church told us it has no relationship with her and is working to revoke her ordained status. Deputies also say Arabella's six- and seven-year-old sisters, who were also adopted by the McCormicks, were hospitalized in August but are doing better and are in the care of a foster family. And we're still waiting on the medical examiner's autopsy report to get an official cause of death for Arabella. In the meantime, Leticia McCormick and both of her parents are in custody. All three are scheduled to be arraigned Wednesday. Alexis Rivas for NBC7 Investigates. Chilling. She was a beautiful little girl, Letitia McCormick. No less the mother. What's the name of the daughter? Ariba. Ariba McCormick. She was an ordained elder at a California megachurch. She's arrested along with her parents in connection to the death of the 11-year-old adopted daughter. She was taken into Letitia McCormick, 49, was taken into custody last Monday mm -hmm. on charges of murder, three counts of torture, three counts of willful cruelty to a child following the death of Ariba McCormick. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department gave a press release. Now, Letitia McCormick's father, Stanley Tom, 75, was arrested on the same charges. 
Her mother, Adela Tom, 70, was only charged with torture and willful cruelty to a child. Authorities began their investigation on August 30th after deputies were called to a home in Spring Valley for a report of a child in distress. Ariba was found at the home and rushed to the hospital where she died. Detectives said the little girl had signs of possible child abuse. A sheriff spokesman said she appeared very malnourished. Shortly after her August 30th death, her father, Brian McCormick, he was a U.S. Customs and Border Protection agent, committed suicide in front of the deputies in front of his house in a truck. The other children were placed in foster care. Spokesman for the church, the Rock Church, San Diego. And, and by the way, this house that McCormick's lived in was beautiful. It was a big, nice house. The same that the parents lived in. Oh, these are very nice, very nice houses. Now, a church spokesman said that Letitia McCormick was a volunteer She's in a volunteer capacity to help with various ministry tasks. Volunteers are not responsible for church operations and governance and do not have any leadership or authority. I will read you the statement from the church. We have received notice that Letitia and her parents have been arrested as a result of the Sheriff's Department investigation. We continue to grieve for Reba and her sisters. We are so sorry that their family and friends are experiencing this unimaginable loss and pain. The legal process will run its course, and we hope justice for Abella and her sisters will be served. We are praying that God's love and grace will bring comfort and healing. Horrible, horrible. What can you say? New York economist gets 25 to life 40 years after murdering wife with an axe. 40 years. It took, it took the police 40 years to capture an axe murderer. I wonder why. If the DNA found on John Bonet is viable. We don't care about John Bonet. Where's my story? If the DNA found on John Bonet is viable, how long could it take to catch her killer? It might only be a matter of hours before that DNA contributor is like. Really? Fascinating. A New York man has been sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for the 1982 axe murder of his wife, a case that went cold for nearly 40 years before it was solved. James Kruznick, now 70, received the maximum sentence for killing his wife, Kathleen Kruznick, with an axe while she slept in her Brighton home in 82. That's what the Moreau County District Attorney said. We do not give up on victims, she wrote. We will do everything in our power to secure justice even 40 years later. 
The story of the Kathleen Kruznick's death, which became known as the Brighton Axe murder, was later turned into a Netflix special, Things Heard and Seen. Hmm. Things Heard and Seen is directed by Robert Pulcini and starring, uh, written, directed, and Sherry Berman. The chilling drama stars Amanda Siegfried and James Norton as a Manhattan couple whose marriage has a sinister darkness that rivals her new home's history. That sounds like one to watch. Kruznick, he was convicted in September of second-degree murder for the 82 slang in Brighton, New York. It's a suburb of Rochester located roughly 85 miles west of Syracuse. Brighton police officers discovered Kathleen Kruznick on February 19, 1982, and the family's dull... Rio Drive home, dead from a strike in the head with an axe while she slept. Officers located her lifeless body in bed. The district attorney's office reviewed the case with renewed vigor in 2015 with the help of the FBI. The Brighton Police Department and famed forensic pathologist, Dr. Michael Baden, who is also a Fox News contributor, and a grand jury indicted James Kruznick in November 2019 after investigators determined James moved away and went on with his life after killing his wife. I'm going to continue this, see if I can give you more information on this. And let's see, I do have some info on this from No Agenda. No agenda tube. I got some comments on this article. Somebody put, and I don't know if that I agree, women just don't understand economics. That was a joke. He was an economics professor after all. So, there you go. Moving from New York to Iowa. For this story right here, we cover this... A few days ago, well, we have, remember Piper Lewis? She went missing. She removed her ankle bracelet. She went on the run. All the money that people, Piper Lewis, she's the one who killed her rapist. And the judge imposed a $150,000 restitution fee for her to pay the parents. Then she got about 500000 on... I got a new message right now on No Agenda Tube. No, I mean, uh, No Agenda Social. So she had to pay $150,000 in restitution to the family of the, man, of the rapist she murdered. And then, oh, so I think she might have got like involuntary manslaughter. And then she had to go fund me where she got over $560,000. Well, she went on the run, cut off her ankle bracelet, and left. I'm here to tell you today that they caught her. It's making news right now. Piper Lewis is back in jail tonight. The 17-year-old escaped from a Des Moines women's shelter last week after she was sentenced to five years probation for killing the man she says raped her. KCCI's Bo Bowman has been following this case since the initial homicide investigation in 2020. Bo's live tonight at the Polk County Courthouse. 
Polk County Criminal Court, that's the last place we heard from or saw Piper Lewis. And it's where Judge David Porter said she'd end up if she violated her probation. Lewis, this is the second chance that you've asked for. You don't get a third. Understand that? Yes, I do. That's what teenager Piper Lewis was told as she was given her sentence in September for killing 37-year-old Zachary Brooks in 2020. Five years probation, forced to be served while living at Fresh Start Women's Center, and granted a deferred judgment. That was before her escape, and before she was found and arrested in Des Moines on Tuesday. She'll be uh, losing that deferment, which means she'll be a convicted felon for the rest of her life. Drake Law Professor Robert Rigg told KCCI on Monday she could be facing 10 years for both of her charges. In the weeks leading up to her escape, Court documents show residential officers recorded more than four hours of time where Lewis was unaccounted for in between leaving the facility and clocking in and out of work. And another incident where she was given a ride instead of taking the bus. The document says Lewis admitted to being with a friend who she used to date in high school. Last time we heard from her, Lewis told Judge David Porter she understood a violation of her probation would be met with much more severe consequences. If I mess up by any means, I will be back in this courtroom to face the consequences. Now, a former teacher of Lewis raised over half a million dollars through a GoFundMe page to help pay her mandatory restitution. He tells me that that account has been frozen, but they do still plan to use that to help Lewis and other human trafficking trafficking victims. That almost tells me the money was never going to go to her anyway. It was just going to go from the teacher that helped raise it to her fees and then back to whoever. So she she was never going to get any of the money. And I can't help but feel bad for her being a mentally immature as she is. And she's had a, a rough life and it seems like she was under the I mean, we all have our own responsibilities, but she was under the influence of a boyfriend. So we're going to I'm going to continue to cover this. This is a sad story. Does she deserve a third a third chance or do you think that Maybe at this point she'd be safer in jail until for a little while until she can mentally grow up and know that we're live in Des Moines, Bobo and KCCI. Jail is no place you want to be. Speaking about jail not being any place you want to be, there's a story about Warren Beatty being accused of coercing sex from a minor in a 1973 in a new lawsuit. So I expect to see a lot more of this. The allegations date back to 73, but the suit was filed under the recent California law that opened up a new window for survivors of child sex abuse to open court proceedings. So how many of these are we going to be getting from Hollywood? Although the site, the suit doesn't cite Beatty by name, it does describe the defendant as having been nominated for Best Actor for his performances, Clyde and Bonnie and Clyde, which can only describe Beatty. Christina Charlotte Hirsch, filed the lawsuit in Los Angeles Superior Court on Monday, alleging that she met Beatty on a movie in 1973 when she was 14 and he was about 35. Beatty commented repeatedly on her looks and gave her his phone number, according to the lawsuit. 
Hirsch was initially thrilled by the attention and began calling and meeting with the star regularly per the legal documents. Beatty allegedly took her on car rides, offered to help her with her homework, and repeatedly talked to her about losing her virginity. Eventually, the Oscar winner used his frame and power to coerce her into sex acts, for which she could not have given meaningful consent, the lawsuit alleges. Representatives for Beatty did not immediately respond. For comment, Hirsch is seeking damages for the alleged crime, saying that she has suffered physical and emotional distress over the years and has required therapy and counseling. Although there is usually a statute of limitations on allegations of sexual assault, Hirsch is filing under a 2019 California law, no doubt brought in by the Me Too movement for good reason, that opened up a new three-year window for survivors of childhood sex abuse to open court proceedings. So I think we have a lot more of these coming up. Here's some of the comments that people are making here under this article. A link to all these articles are going to be in the podcast show notes. A 50-year-old allegation, obviously just a huge money grab. The minor, who is now in her 60s, needs some retirement money. Going all the way back in 73 for this golden oldie accusation, this is shaky old brand on CHUD 105. Betty gave those kids cocaine or herpes. As time passed, those kids grew up into screwed up adults. How dare you marginalize these women? Oh, please, enough already. Impossible to truly defend yourself against such old accusations. It seems impossible to charge someone with such an old allegation. Civil suits aren't charges. He can't be charged criminally, but he can be sued civilly. So they're going to go after Mick Jagger and John Phillipson? Mick took John Phillips' daughter, Mackenzie, to bed when she was underage with full knowledge of her dad. McKenzie said she was 18 and Jagger was 35, which is legal. McKenzie once told Oprah she had consensual sexual relations with her father. It sounds like she had all sorts of substance abuse problems throughout her life. It's hard to know if anything she says is true. Bunch of hippies. I'm telling you, the internet is a cesspool sometimes, is it not? I got a comment from this on No Agenda Tube. Was just thinking, story is Humphrey Bogart interceded between Lauren Bacall and an exec when she was still a minor, then annexed her in total anyway. I guess he figured if anyone was going to have her, it might as well be with him. Even 1973 was a different world. Best to move on. Don't you dare even think about having kids either. Your partner, quote unquote, will take you to the cleaners and you'll be lucky to stay out of jail. And this is a comment we had from yesterday about the member, the founding member of Adventures with Purpose and his accusations from a family member that he sexually abused her when he was 18 and she was 10. Somebody put, we'll see what sticks to the wall afterwards. So far, we only heard bits and pieces only. Some already convicted him by resigning.
somebody put, I hate pesos with a burning passion, but how the F do you defend against an allegation of an alleged incident from 30 years ago? Some things we have no answers. We just have questions. That's where we're at. Have you guys heard about the Pike County massacre trial? Do you know about George Wagner III? Do you know about this one family murdering a other family? It's on trial right now. You can see that on Law and Crime. To give you a sense of how much attention is on this case, they've put this fence up all around the courthouse here in downtown Waverly. George is the first member of his family to face a jury in this case. It has gotten international attention. His attorneys say they can prove he never pulled a trigger that night in April 2016. Eight family members shot at close range and killed. Chris Roden Sr., Dana Roden. Their daughter, Hannah Mae, and sons, Chris Jr. and Clarence, who they call Frankie. Frankie's fiance, Hannah Gilly, Chris Sr.'s brother, Kenneth, and cousin, Gary. Three young children were covered in blood, but unharmed. A four-day-old infant was alive in Hannah Mae's bed, laying next to her dead mother. You came in like thieves in the night and took eight lives, some being children. In the most horrific way, I've ever seen in my 20 plus years. Autopsy reports show whoever shot the rodents did so at close range, even sometimes with the gun barrel touching their skin. Gary Roden was shot nine times, at least once through a door. Six of the other victims were shot between three and five times each in the face and head. And Kenneth Roden was shot in his right eye. Dana Roden's dad called it back then. Whoever done it knowed the family because there were two dogs there would eat you up. Leonard Manley was a regular in court until he died last year. This investigation went from Ohio to Alaska and back, looking for the Wagners. The connection, Jake Wagner is the father of Hannah Mae Roden's then two-year-old daughter, who was with Jake the night of the murders. Investigators say this was all over custody of that little girl. They say the family planned the attack, watching the family's movements and hacking their social media. They left a trail, the parts to build a silencer, the forged documents, the cameras, cell phones, all that they tampered with, and the lies, all the lies they told us. Jake and his mom, Angela, have taken plea deals in this case to take the death penalty off the table, but they will have to testify against George in this trial. In Waverly, I'm Evan Millward, WCPO 9 News. I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. We're going to be back tomorrow with some more stories, some more stories usually not gathered in one place definitely not with the mainstream media these dark stories very dark stories here on midnight radio well thanks for tuning in anyway 325-261-0892 if you have a comment or question you can hit me up start you a free mastodon account there on noagendasocial.com and i'm at pops on there you can get a link to all these stories there. There's going to be a link to all these stories in the show notes. Again, the phone number is 325-261-0892. 325-261-0892. You can leave me up to a three-minute voicemail message. If you'd like to send me a story, you can do that at midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. That is midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Until then, God bless.